an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo Radio, heard with Dave Ross Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, a long out-of-print book of Yakima Nation legends and stories is back, and we meet the 100-year-old author. My Indian name is Tukhamshish. I'm Virginia Beaver. And then, from the archives, the chilling story of the lost ship Valencia. Like somebody used a big cleaver and just chopped it off the rest of the vessel, and it's lying upside down on a white sand bottom. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map, which is a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, an amateur history sleuth may have discovered a 100-year-old railroad artifact hidden in the woods north of Enumclaw. Hi, Felix. Good morning, Dave. It has kind of a Scooby-Doo quality to it. Um, <laughs> the amateur sleuth is Robin Adams of West Seattle. We traded emails over the years about various projects, and I saw some photos and maps you posted on social media a week or so ago and decided to reach out. Robin's retired from the special event industry. She spent years searching through online records and old maps to identify remains of mining operations and railroad activities, and that kind of stuff is all over South King County. Now, our most recent discovery is in the old logging and railroad community of Vesey. It's a few miles north of, uh, northeast of Enumclaw along what used to be the Northern Pacific Railroad Main Line. It's over the Cascades through Stampede Pass and down into Tacoma. This is the old granddaddy route that was built in the 1880s, right after the Northern Pacific chose Tacoma over Seattle as its terminus, which some people are still cranky about. Yeah. Now, the community of Vesey, not exactly a household name anymore and probably never was. That came from Thomas Vesey, who was a logger in the area. According to old maps, it was also the site of a quarry or a gravel pit for the railroad. So what did Robin Adams find on a public right-of-way in the woods of Vesey? When I went looking for it, I knew it was off in the woods to the edge of this street, this road, 392nd. And I parked my car and got out and walked along, and I kept looking and looking along. And then I saw where there was like a old little road, almost a path. And I walked down here, and here is this cement building. The roof is somewhat caved in, and the door is missing. The hinges of the door are still there. They're pretty gnarly metal hinges in the side of this cement building. Hmm. So what Robin found is believed to be an old powder house built sometime between 1900 and 1920 by the Northern Pacific Railroad. Now, what a powder house is, a small concrete shed, maybe 12 by 12, no windows, built into the hillside because it was possibly meant for storing explosives. Those explosives would have been used at the old quarry right there in downtown Vesey. Now, why would a railroad need a quarry? Well, that's where they get the gravel or the ballast that they line the rails with to keep the tracks level. Now, this is near the Cumberland Vesey Road, north of southeast 392nd, on the east side of the old railroad tracks. This is north of a place called Fell Hill Park. Um, one quirky thing about Vesey, that name appears twice on the map. One theory is it's not far from those northern Pacific tracks or the old Milwaukee Road tracks that run parallel. Mm-hmm. So a single Vesey wasn't big enough to stretch from one track to the other. So there had to be one Vesey along the northern Pacific tracks, and then a mile or so east, another Vesey along the Milwaukee Road tracks. Pretty quirky. yes. <laughs> Two yes, <laughs> two One VZ wasn't enough, so they had to have two. Now, um, I tweeted a photo of the old powder house, and we'll have more maps and photos from Robin Adams uh, later this morning at My Northwest. All right, Felix Bunnell, all his features at MyNorthwest.com. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks, Dave. Serving greater Seattle.
again time for our Wednesday history lesson. A long out-of-print book of legends and stories from the Yakima Nation is back in a new edition. The author, who grew up in a native language-speaking household, has been studying indigenous languages since she was 12. She has now reached age 100, and our resident historian Felix Bunnell recently spoke with her. Felix is brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. Good morning, Felix. Yeah, good morning, Dave. Yeah, this is a 100-year-old author. Um, she's an expert on this language called Sahaptan, and that's the language uh, that was spoken in many different dialects all across what's now eastern Washington. The author of the book is Virginia Beavert, but that's not her only name. My Indian name is Tuchamshush. I'm Virginia Beavert. You know, and she's leading an amazing life. She's done so much to preserve and share language, culture, and history of the original inhabitants of the Columbia Plateau, maybe more than anyone else. Um, she was born in 1921, grew up in the Yakima Valley with parents and grandparents who spoke many tribal dialects and languages that she learned to speak as well. And Virginia Beavert started early in her linguist career. She helped document the Klickitat language for a researcher from Dartmouth when she was only 12 years old. She helped actually create a written version of that language as a 12-year-old. She raced horses. She served in the Air Force during World War II at a B-29 base as a radio operator in New Mexico. And then about 50 years ago, with encouragement from her family and some grant money from the early days of kind of self-determination and native education, along with the American Indian movement back in the late 60s, she spent most of a year driving up and down eastern Washington in her Dodge from Wenatchee to Celilo, making audio recordings of stories and legends told by elders to be used to create a book to be used in classrooms on the Yakima Reservation. Now, it was unusual for Native people to allow themselves to be recorded, but Virginia Beavert was trusted, and she found many willing narrators. When I explained the project, the way it was explained to me, they said, all right, I will record some legends for the children, for their education. And I thought that was very open-hearted about them, and I told them how much I appreciated that they didn't run me out the door. <laughs> now, the book is called Anaku Iwacha, which means the way it was. It was published in 1974 as a resource for Yakima Nation schools, but it became priceless for anyone interested in, indig in indigenous culture in Eastern Washington history. One of the cool things about it is that many of the legends and stories relate to specific landmarks. And Virginia Beavert says that presents a unique, a unique opportunity to transmit history and values to children and to adults. They take them there to these landmarks and talk to them about the legend and uh, tell the beautiful parts about it. And also, if you have to relate some of the hard lessons, then uh, do it gently. <laughs> they had a way of putting this across to the children so that it didn't frighten them, you know. You know, and um, there are specific places referenced in the stories, such as Beacon Rock along the Columbia River. It was bare, and it represented the conceited young man who rejected these younger maidens in a disrespectful way, and he also hurt them. And all the lessons that were in that don't, you know, don't hurt other people, don't insult them like he did, and and be gentle with uh, your playmates and all a whole bunch of things. <laughs> you'll have to read it. <laughs> and then you know, go to Beacon Rock, and you'll remember that legend. 
that, that universality that's pretty cool, like yeah. sort of, I don't know, the, the morality tales or stories that have a moral or a lesson to them. I mean, it's, it's true in any culture and, and cultures that have been in this area for 8,000 years. Um, one of the editors of the new edition is Dr. Michelle Jacob. She's a member of the Yakima Nation and a professor of indigenous studies at the University of Oregon. She says the impact of Anaku Iwacha, you know, the original edition, goes far beyond the Northwest. And I've been at international education conferences where I've heard experts, you know, talking about culturally responsive curriculum, and they pointed to the first edition of Anakuiwacha as that wonderful model that other communities look to. So that's, uh, you know, just a, a credit to Tukamshish and to everyone that she worked with. You know, in that, that original edition, it was a relatively small run. It's been like mimeograph versions of it. There's, it comes up every now and then on uh, online booksellers for hundreds of dollars. So it's pretty cool that's out now from University of Washington Press. Virginia Beaverts justifiably proud of this new edition of the book. She's encouraged that younger generations will do their part to preserve the stories and legends, but also, as she's been doing for literally almost all her life, preserving indigenous languages. The young people now are beginning to realize their culture is also disappearing because without culture, there's no language. Without language, there's no culture. You know, and those tapes that she made 50 years ago, yeah. those were stolen. They just they disappeared. Uh, and it was, the, so she translated all those the stories and legends into English, but she'd recorded them in all those original dialects, and the tapes, they were stolen sometime in the mid-1970s, have never been seen ever since. Wow. If those ever turned up, they would be just absolutely priceless. Um, and the book's called, it's called Anaku Iwacha. It's got all these incredible illustrations. Back when she was doing the original edition, she made a, put a poster up at the, uh, the tribal center there in Toppenish, I think, it said, if anyone wants to contribute drawings, so multiple tribal people drew their own pictures to go along with these legends and stories, and those are reproduced in this new edition of the book, too. So, And that's just a really cool... What's that? Is it out now? Yeah, it's out now, and it's... You know, there's sort of a ghettoization of history sometimes. You have, you know, you have European history, African-American history, Native American history. This is just Northwest history. It just should be on the bookshelf there with any other story about stuff that's happened here in the Northwest because it's it's 8,000 years of amazing culture that's right here from where we all live. Yeah. I mean, can you find it on Amazon? Yeah, it's published by University of Washington Press, and mm -hmm. it's it's right. it's a gorgeous book. You can probably get it at the University Bookstore. It's, I mean, I'm sure it's available lots of places. Felix Bedell, every Wednesday and Friday on Cairo News Radio. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, The Wreck and the Ghosts of the Passenger Ship Valencia, lost off Vancouver Island in 1906. Joke about it now. I'm only laughing because I'll never forget when did she perform this at the Oscars and she hit her chest wearing that that big blue diamond and everybody went <gasps> thinking she was going to break it. Remember that? Emerging from deep beneath the Bonneville Broadcast Center, here's our resident historian, Felix Spinell, who has unearthed a tragedy in the Northwest similar to the uh, Titanic, really. Yeah, well, this was in 19, uh, 1906. It was 110 years ago this week. It was the Valencia. It's well-known among people up on Vancouver Island, especially people in the Canadian Coast Guard. Pretty much forgotten around Seattle, though we do have a monument to it up on Queen Anne Hill. And we've got pictures of all this stuff. Where on Queen Anne Hill? In the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. 
There's oh, a tomb okay. of 13 unknown victims, and um, I've got pictures of it at mynorthwest.com, oh. and a big, long story about it. There's all kinds of details I couldn't cram into this thing this morning. But um, So I went right to the source. I talked to a guy who runs the search and rescue department for the Canadian Coast Guard off of Vancouver Island. He explained why the Valencia, which was this 252-foot ship, the captain missed the turn to, to Cape Flattery, right, to get into the Strait of Juan de mm-hmm. Fuca. They didn't have the same kind of navigation tools in those days. And they ran aground just before midnight on Monday, January 22nd, 1906, and this is uh, Clay Evans with the Canadian Coast Guard explaining why that was such a bad spot. Yeah, I mean, the, the geography, that was, that was the big problem. Uh, this horrific, solid, flat ledge full of boulders and rocks, and uh, for any large vessels to get in, it was impossible uh, without the risk of running aground themselves. Uh, on top of that, there was no real beach uh, ahead of her. It was essentially straight bluff, um, so it was probably the worst imaginable place to, to have unfortunately run aground. Yeah, so there's no radio to, to let people know they're in trouble. They've, a few people eventually get ashore. You know, the waves are crashing. It's just these high bluffs. There's about 175 people on board. Mm-hmm. They don't know exactly how many. What they kind of ship was it? I mean, this is a passenger ship? Yeah, 252-foot um, passenger and freight. In those days, the yeah. Pacific Coast uh, steamship line ran passengers and freight between the Bay Area and Seattle and Victoria. The ship was headed for Victoria and Seattle you know, late at night in the dark, and it's you know, it sat there for about 36 hours. Um, a couple ships came and couldn't get in because it was this really tough spot. There's no place to really go ashore. The life, a couple lifeboats flipped over. People drowned. People were dying of exposure. I mean, it was this horrific, horrific tragedy. And and the area where it happened is still pretty spooky. I talked to a guy who's with the Underwater Archaeological Society of British Columbia who's mm-hmm. dived on this wreck many times. And what's a little bit eerie is is when you go out, the bow is it's like somebody used a big cleaver and just chopped it off the rest of the vessel. And it's you know, lying upside down on a white sand bottom, and two anchors. There's one on either side of it. Mm. And there's, there's no sign of this from the shore. You have to dive to see it now. Yeah, you, you yeah. have to now because it's just the cast iron is kind of sunk yeah. in. It's been pounded by the waves. Water's not very deep, but there's a big kelp forest there, according to uh, that was Jacques Mark with the society who talked to me about that. So, at least 117 people died. All the women and children on board. There were 17 women. Not sure how many kids, but about 37 men survived. Um, and I mentioned there's this monument up at Mount Pleasant Cemetery on Queen Anne Hill. But with so many lives lost, the, this Valencia spawned a lot of myths. So in 1910, the Seattle Times published this front page of their magazine, Have You Seen the Phantom Ship? So people were claiming they'd seen, they could see the ship that looked like the Valencia that had people clinging to the mass and the rigging. Because that was ha- what happened. As it slowly broke apart, people were climbing higher and higher up and clinging to what just, was just left. Right. And they're yeah. too far from shore for anybody to, to swim? Or? Well, it's like about 100 yards to shore, but it's this shallow water, big yeah. breakers, and then bluffs. No real beach. I mean, it was the worst possible place for a ship to run aground. Um, and then, you know, there's this other thing. They said after the wreck, somebody said, oh, I spotted a lifeboat in a cave full of skeletons. There's all these sorts of myths. But then, unbelievably, in 1933, a lifeboat was found just floating in Barclay Sound 27 years later, right? And they've got, they pulled the nameplate off it. The museum up in Victoria has it. We have pictures of that at MindWithWest.com. But the fact this lifeboat was found made Clay Evans, who's with the Coast Guard, I asked him, you know, what about this thing about the skeletons? And I thought he'd, he'd be completely skeptical. But he said it sort of supports the idea that there might have been a lifeboat full of skeletons. Well, I, I, I think it's quite possible. Um, you know, and maybe somebody, for whatever reason, was up a search channel and, and it did have skeletons in it at the time. I, I don't think it's beyond the realm of, of the impossible. So it's spooky and it's a terrible tragedy. It's pretty much forgotten by other than maritime historians, but there was a silver lining in that it helped the Coast Guard really figure out what to do for subsequent wrecks. If there's any enduring positive legacy, you know, the tragedy did lead to the establishment of a life-saving station at Wada Island, which became Mia Bay, which is still exists today. 
and, uh, and of course the, the life saving station of Bamfield and other ones on the west coast of Vancouver Island actually too. Yeah, it's hard to imagine you have people who were who are trying to navigate in this area with without radar, without radio, without uh, uh, sonar, depth sounders. Uh, and still that anything would get through. Yeah, and one little quick fact, the passengers toward the end were actually singing Nearer My God to Thee. Really? Which they think that story, the actual fact of that happening, led to the legend of the band playing that aboard the Titanic, really? which some people think didn't really happen. So there's a connection to the Titanic with this wreck. Not not as huge a scale, but certainly a big impact in the future of having a Coast Guard operation to prevent this from happening in the future. Our resident historian, Felix Bennell. You can read the whole thing on MyNorthwest.com. Thanks, Felix. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and please take a moment to give a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. Yes, it's raining in Seattle, baby. Please can I come This is Bill Curtis inviting you to tune in to KIRO Felix will enlighten you.